Afrika Rise and Shine Afrika Zora Afrika Amka na Unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to southern and double one nine two five kilohertz on the twenty five meter band to far west Africa and on the DSTV's audio bouquet is channel eight zero two. I'm Amanda Machaka in studio with N Musa Tabisoluhuku and Fikileli Mwati. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine this hour. South Sudan politician Rebecca Nyandeng signs a new peace agreement. Aid workers say community mistrust is worsening DRC Ebola outbreak. Brazilian woman peacekeeper wins top UN military award. In economics, Kenya in no rush over new IMF standby facility. And in sports, South Africa steps up plans to host 2023 Women's World Cup. But first, here's Anne with the news. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Zambia's High Commissioner in South Africa, Emmanuel Mwamba, has called for an immediate stop of attacks on foreign nationals in the country. About 200 foreign nationals fled the informal settlements where they were living in Durban after being attacked at night. The Zambian High Commission has denounced the attacks. Mwamba says he's raising the alarm because of xenophobic attacks in the past. He has warned that diplomats from African countries are planning an urgent meeting with the South African government to secure assurances that African foreign nationals are safe. Mwamba says it's imperative to act fast to protect lives and property. Meanwhile, displaced foreign nationals who fled their homes in informal settlements in South Africa's coastal city of Durban have accused the police of failing to protect them. Malawian displaced foreign national spokesperson Michael Murumba says police failed the week when they needed them the most. I think, like I said, about too much problem, but they never take anything. Everything is lost. It in the fridge, even clothes, shoes, whatever, nothing. I always just take it, everything. I didn't find anything, just lost lost everything. I had to find the police, but the police, you find it, but he's scared. didn't help that time because most most of the power we have that time, but he didn't find the truth. The police watched them and then running away. He didn't help us. The UN Security Council has adopted a resolution that aims to bolster global efforts to counter the various ways in which terrorist organizations finance their operations. In a unanimous decision, the resolution demands that all countries strengthen their domestic laws to better hold accountable those individuals and groups for directly or indirectly financing terrorist organizations or individual terrorists. South Africa has welcomed the decision through Defence and Military Veterans Minister Nosivwe Mapisa Ngakula. The African Union has, over the course of its existence, developed a wide-ranging policy framework, legal instruments and programs to deal with this threat, including its financing. Our efforts to fight terrorism and its financing in South Africa are guided by these measures 
commensurate with the country's exposure to terrorist financing activities and its obligations as both a member state of the United Nations and a member of the Financial Action Task Force. A lawsuit against the airplane maker Boeing has been filed in a United States federal court by the family of a man who died in the Ethiopian Airlines crash earlier this month. All 157 crew and passengers were killed in the accident. The relatives of Jackson Musoni, a Rwandan citizen, alleged that Boeing 737 MAX airliner had a design defect in its automated flight control system. The entire 737 MAX fleet was grounded following the crash, the second involving the 737 MAX in five months. Boeing is yet to respond to the action. Investigators are still to determine the cause of the accidents. And finally, a new study has revealed that around 300,000 women across the globe, almost all of them in developing countries, are dying every year as a result of having cesarean sections. In sub-Saharan Africa, one in 100 women who has a C-section will die 100 times more than a woman in the UK. The BBC's Richard Galpin reports. The researchers analysed data from 12 million pregnancies and they found that the risk of death from caesarean sections in developing countries was far higher than they'd expected. In many areas, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, the number of women dying is a hundred times higher than in wealthy countries like Britain. The authors of the study, published in the British magazine The Lancet, are calling for women in the affected countries to have better access to surgery carried out by skilled medical staff. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Let's talk about it. I'm Joe Mangria. And I'm Tabisa Jala. Join us at 9 a.m. Central African Time. Let's, Let's talk, talk about it. A program on AIDS and other social issues. A program that will encourage a positive lifestyle to young people affected and infected. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about it at 9 a.m. Central African Time on Channel Africa. It's 8.07 Central African Time. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Rebecca Nyandeng, the widow of Dr. John Garang, has signed the new peace agreement, which was signed in September last year by South Sudan President Salva Kiir and his main rival, Riek Masham. Nyandeng is the wife of the late founder of the SPLMA, Dr. Garang, died in a plane crash in 2005 after a month of signing the CPA with a Sudan government led by President Omar al-Bashir. Shem Shemanyula has more. With less than five weeks remaining before a government of national unity is formed in South Sudan, Rebecca Nyandeng, widow of the late Johnny Garang, has signed the new peace agreement. Since the agreement was signed last year, it has been missing her signature to prove that she's party to it after it was signed by President Salva Kiir, rebel leader Riek Machar, 
and other groups that have been involved in ethnic fighting over the past five years. Rebecca Nyandeng briefly explains why she finally decided to sign the important agreement. My signature was not there in the agreement because I did go to Khartoum at that time to sign the agreement. And if my signature is not there, the people of South Sudan will say that the agreement is incomplete. Why is Mama's name is not there? Yes, I support the agreement because if my people, people of South Sudan, wanted this agreement, who am I to say no? And an individual, and peace is always for the people, not for individuals. So I support this agreement, and I have been there always. And the Igrat people, is, they are always involving me, and I wanted to see the light at the end of the tunnel for the people of South Sudan. The question that arises at this juncture is whether or not Rebecca Nyandeng is filled with fear of a South Sudan's future, taking into consideration that past agreements collapsed even before they were implemented. I have fears because uh, the problem with us as leaders, we don't accept ourselves. We need to accept ourselves and know that there is challenge. The people and our supporters are looking at us. So we need to come into the presidency as the leaders of the people of South Sudan. The leaders of South Sudan must know that they don't own the people nor the country. Not even their life, the one they breathe, you don't own it. God is the one who gives us that. We have to do our job not as parties but as the leaders of the people. When we need parties, when we go, we need vehicle for the party, when we go for election. Though filled with the fear, Rebecca Nyandeng, herself a freedom fighter, like her late husband John Garang, has high expectation that if all goes well in the country, permanent peace will prevail after the formation of a government of national unity in the first week of May this year. My expectation, I wanted to see peace and to see my people embracing one another as one people created by God, because God created us in his own image, not as tribes. Rebecca Nyandeng signed the new peace agreement in the presence of African Union's representative in South Sudan, Ismail Weiss, who stresses that it is only the people of Africa's newest nation that will decide when a government of national unity will be formed. The decision whether we form the Artegonal or whether we postpone it and what not, this will be really the decision of the South Sudanese people themselves. And I think we should also, as far as we are concerned, the region and the international community, we should respect that. That was African Union's special representative, Ismail Weiss. Rebecca Nyandeng's decision to sign the new peace agreement has been spotlighted by several experts vast with the politics of Africa's newest nation. Alexander Maura, based in South Sudan's capital, Yuba, is one of the experts. Here is Maura's take on Rebecca Garang's decision to sign the new peace agreement. It's a very encouraging now that uh, Rebecca Garang, who is the winner, uh, John Garang, the founding father of uh, a freedom fighter, the founding father of South Sudan, now that she has agreed to sign, now that she has signed the peace agreement, less than a month towards its uh, deadline. It's something that we should all enjoy. It's something that is very encouraging and inspiring. And uh, for us, uh, people in the region, we feel that is one giant step that will lead to restoration of peace, reconciliation, and uh, unity and stability in South Sudan. You know as well as I do 
and as well as other people know internationally and locally in South Sudan. Previous peace agreements have not lasted after they have been signed, they have been violated. Do you think that now that the mother of uh, the nation of South Sudan, as she calls herself, and given that she's the wife of the late founding father of South Sudan nation, now that she has signed this very important document, after refusing to do so in Khartoum when Riek Machar and um, Salva Bakri signed it, you think that agreement will turn out to be ending the five years of instability in South Sudan? It's very encouraging to witness uh, Rebecca Galang signing uh, to the peace agreement. Given her influential positions in South Sudan, she has demonstrated that she is not held back by some of those uh, issues, the baggage of the past. So she believes in uh, pragmatism, political pragmatism, as opposed to conservatism and uh, strong arm tactics. So she's one person who believes in practical steps. She appears to be a very pragmatic politician, a very realistic politician. I believe, and I have no doubt in my mind, that South Sudan is headed for better times. That was Alexander Maura, Juba-based expert on South Sudan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shima. When Lieutenant Commander Marcia Adrande Braga arrived in Bangui, the capital of the Central African Republic, to take up her post as military gender advisor with the UN peacekeeping mission there, MINUSCA, no one else in the mission was tasked with protecting the needs of conflict-affected women. But just one year on, she has managed to build a network of gender focal points across the country. Her dedication has earned her the UN Military Gender Advocate of the Year Award, which she is officially receiving today as part of the 2019 Peacekeeping Ministerial Conference. She speaks about what this award means to her. The idea is to understand how the conflict is affecting local population. I have met with local women leaders. That, in my opinion, is the most important of my views. So the moment that I talk with local women, in order to understand what is happening, uh, the problems that uh, they are facing, and uh, with this information, I can support operations. In, in these meetings that you have, in particular maybe the ones with the women leaders, what are some of the greatest challenges that you have found? When I'm a, uh, I have these meetings, I receive precious information about uh, how the conflict is affecting them. Uh, for example, illegal checkpoints or if they have a restriction of movement because they need to access their farms. Sometimes their farms is very far away because they are displaced. And uh, when they are assessing their farms, they are very vulnerable. So when I have my patrols, when I'm visiting sectors, what I'm observing that we have a lot of women and children crossing the roads with containers of water, looking for firewood. So during these meetings, I can understand uh, the, the challenges that the ladies, they are facing on the ground. And with this information, we can plan our operations. And at the same time, uh, we can think about projects to decrease this vulnerability 
So, for example, if uh, I have ladies assessing their farms very far away, you can think about community gardens close to their house in order to avoid this movement so far away. And uh, the same way, uh, water points and uh, lights close to their house in the points that they are more active. So during these meetings, I can understand what is happening and I can share in this information. And in those visits, in those meetings, from your interactions with the communities, is there a story or a person that has particularly marked you and that you will, uh, that will stay with you forever? Yes. Well, a lot of stories. It's uh, one year, that almost one year, and uh, I visited all the sectors and I had meetings with local women. Uh, once I had a meeting with, uh, it was around the fourth uh, women, And one lady um, started to explain, and she said, all of us, we passed for sexual violence. And it was something to me that was very strong, because it was a room with ladies. And, uh, wow, it's, so it's, it's a very serious problem here. Another day I had a meeting, and um, a lady, oh, my, my daughter, 10 years old, was raped. So it's something that and when you are there and you look in the eyes and you receive this information, it's like a commitment that was established. So we need to take action. This is the difference, and it's something that I'm always explain to have meeting with local women. Because it's different when we receive a report, a piece of paper, and when you look and you understand and you can feel the pain that they are feeling. So uh, these stories, and uh, when I started, I received once uh, a report that nine women were killed uh, when they were assessing their farms. And, uh, and I started thinking, wow, and uh, now the, the children, without the mother in the IDP, It's so difficult because it's a very difficult situation. Imagine these children without the mother, the only one that was providing food and uh, protecting them. These moments, I think that it uh, was like um, something that uh, pushed to take action and to do something. As a woman peacekeeper, why is it important for you to serve and why do you feel we need maybe more women in, in peacekeeping? I think it's very important participation of female peacekeepers. I have female peacekeepers in some areas, uh, battalions that we have a good number, and it's completely different. First of all, we need to have mixed patrols. It's easier for a local woman to explain their issues, to explain uh, how the conflict is affecting them. So it's very important the presence of a female peacekeeper. At the same uh, moment, when I have a female peacekeepers working with a male peacekeeper, I'm showing to the local community gender equality that you can do the same tasks. So I think it's something very powerful. It's an amazing example. And uh, it's a kind of identification. And uh, it's something that will help them to feel more, more safe. All the results that I can see in, my, in MINUSCA When I have female peacekeepers, it's completely different. We can gather information, precious information, and we can avoid violations. We can have early warning, we can, we can prevent. I think this is the point, because our mandate is protection of civilians. That's Lieutenant Commander Mashia Adrande Braga, Military Gender Advisor with the UN Peacekeeping Mission there, MINUSCA, 
talking to UN's Yasmina Geda. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubung, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. The World Health Organization says more time is needed to build trust with people of the Ebola-affected areas in eastern DRC. At a press conference in Kinshasa, WHO Special Envoy said the outbreak has taken so long due to what he described as a complicated environment. Januel Pamweza reports from Kinshasa. The Ebola epidemic has reached a rate of more than a thousand cases of infected people from whom it has killed more than 600 in both Beni and Butembo in the east and Itori in the northeast of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The outbreak has taken so long due to a complicated environment including insecurity and lack of trust between the report team and people of the Ebola-affected areas. The World Health Organization special envoy for the Ebola epidemic in this country told the journalist here in Kinshasa that more time is really needed for such a trust to be built and hope to eradicate the outbreak. Peter Graff. The outbreak has taken a long time, that's true. It's a very complicated environment. The security environment is difficult. The level of healthcare services in the Kivus and in Turi is not very high, so the healthcare provision, the basic health provision for the people has been low as well. But it's predominantly the security environment which makes it difficult. But also we have to recognize that this is a conflict environment. The, the population feels that it hasn't been receiving services for many, many years, and it it takes time to instill the trust that we need to be able to work with them to end the outbreak. Because as I mentioned before, it's ultimately the population itself that will make that happen. So with all our interventions, we can keep the number of cases low, the vaccination and the treatment centers and the uh, infection prevention and control. But at the end of the day, we need to work very closely with the population and for that the population needs to be able to trust us and we need to earn that trust. To work very closely with the population of Beni and Butembo in the North Kivu province and some affected areas of the Ituri province remains very important for such a trust with the World Health Organization. There are treatment centers in each affected area but in the North Kivu province in the eastern DRC, this organization has decided to transfer the statistic coordination from Beni to Goma, the provincial capital city. I then asked the WHO special envoy for the Ebola outbreak here in the Democratic Republic of Congo, why did the organization make such a decision while it needs to remain close to the affected population? Peter Graff. We did not transfer the treatment center. People, if they fall ill, they will be treated 
very close to their own homes. So there are treatment centers in Beni, in Butembu, in Katwa, in other places. What has moved to Goma is the coordination, the strategic coordination. So we have local coordination in Beni, in Butembu, in Katwa, in other places. We have teams there that are responsible for the day-to-day -day operations, but the strategic coordination takes place in Goma, because that will allow actors, often international actors, partners, financial partners, technical partners, that cannot go to Benin, that cannot go to Katwa, to be present and work with the government, work with the United Nations to figure out the best interventions. But rest assured, if somebody falls ill, he or she will not be taken all the way to Goma. The treatment will be close to home, And the treatment center is in such a way that when you're not so ill and you can walk around, you can be in touch with your family, your loved ones, you can see each other, you can talk to each other. It's an environment that hopefully we can show is not only beneficial, but it can also be trusted. Meanwhile, most of people in the Beni territory believe the Ebola situation has improved since it's no more like before and there is no more fear. Pascal Kakule is from the Beni Civil Society. Health professionals have then shown that there is no more fear. In areas of Beni, the number of new cases have come down. It's only in Butembo where such cases are still observed. The WHO special envoy has then sent a very important message to people living in the Ebola-affected areas. Peter Graf emphasizes that coming soon to the treatment center gives him more chance for patients to survive. If somebody falls ill, it's very important to come as soon as possible to a treatment center because when you come early, the chance to survive the disease is much, much higher than when you are very ill by the time you arrive. So it's very important for people, the moment they start to feel ill, is to come forward and work with the responders, both to protect your loved ones, because otherwise you might transfer the disease to your family, to your friends, but also to make sure that you get the best possible treatment very early. The current Ebola epidemic hitting some areas of both Beni and Butembo in the east and Ituri in the northeast is the tenth outbreak of the kind since it appeared years ago here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Following complaints that politicians in Chimanimani were looting cyclone dye food aid, the Zimbabwean government has issued a ban against political interference of food distribution. A video of ZANU-PF trucks loading aid and legislators diverting relief went viral on social media. However, during a Senate debate this week, local government minister July Moyo assured the nation that all ZANU-PF branded vehicles and people wearing paterakalia should immediately vacate the area. Simon Muchema reports. Reports of looting of tropical cyclone Idai donated goods started filtering over the weekend. Sources in affected areas, Chipinge and Chimanimani in the eastern Zimbabwe, tipped Channel Africa some politicians were using their party-branded cars to ferry food aid. However, most of that stuff was either diverted or completely disappeared, which attracted severe condemnation from the media and human rights defenders. Government was not sure how to respond and denying every form of accusation, but a video with looting evidence was compiled and it went viral. As such, Parliament seized the moment Tuesday and Wednesday to discuss the food aid 
theft allegations until government revealed all political parties were barred from interfering with cyclone relief. Local government minister Julai Moyo made the announcement in parliament during a senate session. I assure you that we don't allow any political interference in the distribution of, of food. But I wanted to say, the senator is a member of a political party. Uh, Sako, who is the MP, without him, this relief effort would have been impossible. And we applauded. I went to the lower house and I said, uh, uh, members of parliament, what Sako has demonstrated to us by his knowledge of the area which he represents is what we require of our people who are representatives of the people. At this hour of our, our need, we need this leadership to go and console the people in the areas where we can reach. And uh, we have said nobody then from now onwards takes any food even though we have pressure. So let's not go beyond what has happened as if food has been taken from uh, a large quantity to, to areas of that nature. So our message is, yes, it might have happened, it was well made. The officers who wanted to give this knew there was a pressure, but we had already given instructions that nobody carries food when they are identifying themselves as a political party. On Thursday, volunteers confirmed there was now a big change with food aid now reaching several people, including those in the hard-to-reach areas. Initially, there were allegations that roads were impassable and only helicopters would be transporting food. However, citizens started asking questions when ZANU-PF trucks were seen loading food aid and people wondered where it was being taken to, where roads were that bad. During a meeting with the business community, Minister Julai Moyo accused those claiming food aid was being stolen that they were sensationalizing issues. It only took a bold decision by the military to ban the ZANU-PF bigwigs from accessing food aid that normalcy prevailed, an anonymous volunteer said. Yes, things have changed here on the ground. The UN have now tried to take control and get the requirements to the people. The people have got plenty of food here in Gangu, but blankets and that sort of thing, uh, clothing is a problem. I don't know where all these things have gone, but it's not getting to the centres where these people are. You know, we, I'm seeing it from my own eyes. I'm going into the centres, talking to people. They don't have enough blankets. As a result, they are getting infections and that sort of thing because it is cold here at night it's not like Harare where it's nice and warm but here it's very cold at night another volunteer who is also chairperson of the Chimanimani Tourism Association Colin Sibanda agreed the situation had improved there are very very big improvements because some uh, some uh, well wishes are just giving on their own and people complained yeah a little bit better now but to my own opinion, I can see it's a little bit better than, you know, yeah, almost all, all foodstuffs, clothing and so forth. Um, I've seen mealy meal, um, I've seen beans, cooking oil, uh, macarons, spaghetti, pasta, almost everything, biscuits, I, I, a lot of things. And um, I can see army, um, army helicopters and a lot of uh, uh, private helicopters. While food is now readily available, Clothing and blankets are still in short supply, according to Colin Sibanda. Yeah, blankets is a very big shortage, especially here. Um, Zubseka is, uh, is a problem, but food, I think, people are getting. 
But clothing uh, and blankets, I haven't seen anybody putting on any regalia of any party so far, but only regalia of ZANU-PF I can see. At least 259,000 Zimbabweans were affected by the tropical cyclone Idai and require urgent food relief. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Time now for our news headlines with N. Musa. Very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, U.S. President Donald Trump has signed a one-year extension of a humanitarian program that allows Liberians to live and work in the U.S. Thousands of Liberians were facing deportation by Sunday. Zambia's High Commissioner and South Africa Emmanuel Mwamba has called for an immediate stop of attacks on foreign nationals in the country and an appeal court in Chad has dismissed a case brought by lawyers to have access to social media sites restored. Those are the stories making headlines. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1,000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1,000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African time. 1,000 African voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. It's 8.33 Central African Time. It's tuning to Africa Rise and Shine right here on Channel Africa, where we're bringing you news from an African perspective. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says government will work with women and civil society organizations to review existing laws related to gender-based violence to see if they are adequate. He was speaking in Johannesburg at the signing of the declaration which seeks to implement the decisions of the 2018 inaugural presidential summit on gender-based violence and femicide. Ramaphosa also opened the Boysen's Magistrates Court, which includes a family and children's court to deal with domestic violence. Debo Mukobo reports. Today is a special day in that we will be signing the declaration against gender-based violence and femicide. And by doing so, we are essentially saying that the scourge of women abuse has no place whatsoever in South Africa. It's a new dawn for victims and survivors of gender-based violence and signatories of this declaration say it's a blueprint to a South Africa free of gender-based violence. Social partners gathered to endorse President Ramaphosa's call for all South Africans to respond to gender-based violence and to establish a multi-sexual structure to allocate the necessary resources and to develop a national strategy. 
The president said the new structure will ensure that South Africa becomes a caring society for women and children. The declaration that we are signing here today represents our collective commitment to implement a comprehensive and effective prevention and response program to end gender-based violence and femicide in our country. We have agreed to establish an interim steering committee with resources to establish a permanent multi-sectoral coordinating body and implement actions in this declaration. The Interim Steering Committee will develop an action plan. It will also map the response of services provided for survivors. It will also establish a national rapid response to support survivors and develop guidelines for ethical media reporting as well. With a raft of laws promulgated to deal with gender-based violence since 1994, President Ramaphosa, however, said government needs serious introspection as to why these laws are still failing to adequately protect vulnerable women and children. The president said they will embark on a review of all the laws with the aim to decriminalize sex work. Government, on its part, working together with its partners, will review the existing laws as well as policies related to gender-based violence and femicide to determine if they are adequate. And this is where working together is going to have to come to the fore so that collectively, with organs of civil society, with government, we should be able to look very closely at our existing laws and see whether they still have efficacy and effectiveness in dealing with this scourge. And Sbongilem Tembo from Hashtag The Total Shutdown says they are happy that government is now taking violence against women and children seriously. This is a big milestone for us. Look, it has taken over five months for the declaration to be signed and women were starting to panic thinking that this declaration was not going to be signed ever. The president had shown his commitment by signing the declaration and we have also shown our commitment as a civil society that we're going to be here for every woman in South Africa that's suffering abuse and femicide. Nkele Tzane from Rise Up Against Gender-Based Violence says the new call signals a new era against gender-based violence. One of the things that we're pushing for is to have gender-sensitive staff members and um, employees, you know, that won't necessarily victimize our survivors. So I'm hoping, you know, um, I asked whether they're going to do it or not, um, but we'll keep an eye on it. I'm hoping that this means um, a new era. It means a different way of doing things. The president coming out and actually declaring it as a crisis and making the commitment to the country where gender-based violence was something that was not necessarily spoken of is light at the end of the tunnel for us. So far, there are 84 sexual offences caught in the country. And again, President Ramaphosa will launch a similar court at the Plattenberg Bay Magistrate Court in the Western Cape which will provide services for family court and civil cases including small claims court matters, sexual offences court, regional and district courts. I am Tebu Mokobe in Johannesburg. Reports on the special safety and protection privileges accorded accorded to former African Union Chair Dr. Nkosazana Lameni Zuma, as well as the illegal conversion of panel vans into minibus taxis, were among several released by South Africa's public protector advocate Musisiwe Mkwebani in Pretoria on Thursday. On the DA's complaint about Lameni Zuma, the report found that the former police minister Figi Lembalula did not aim providing a VIP protection to the former AU chief after her term of office had expired. Neo Makwiti reports. 
the Public Protector Office has found that former police minister Fiki Lembalula did not err in providing VIP protection to Dr. Nkosasana Tlamini Zuma. This follows a complaint by DA MP Zakele Mbele, who in April 2017 alleged that the affording of Tlamini Zuma SAPS VIP protection constitute maladministration and improper administration conduct. Advocate Kevin Malunga is the Deputy Public Protector. On analysis of the complaint information and documents received during the preliminary inquiry, we decided to investigate whether the Minister of Police improperly provided SAP's VIP protection services to Dr. Lamini Zuma, and if so, whether such conduct constituted improper conduct and maladministration. Following an investigation, we arrived at the following observations and conclusions. Dr. Laminis Zuma's protection by Presidential Protection Services, PPS, as African Union chairperson, was in accordance with the practice prescribed by DERCO, that is the Department of International Relations and Cooperation, of according executive protection to dignitaries of her caliber. The report by public protector advocate Wisisiwa Mkwebani on the illegal penal vans convention reveals that the practice is a dead trap and poses a serious threat not only to commuters but to other motorists. The operation of the illegally converted panel vans into mini taxis in South African roads contributed to various motor vehicle accidents as these vehicles are alleged to be structurally unsafe and unstable when driving at a high uh, speed and led to increased tire bursts, causing accidents. These uh, accidents are alleged to be serious and uh, vital for commuters in the vehicles as the seats are not securely anchored to same and tear loose during accidents. Structural, defective and non-homologized Toyota panel vents were modified by the manufacturer uh, importer and builders, uh, I'll call them MIBs, and converted into taxis which were carrying passengers. And uh, despite the fact that they were not safe for the peoples as well as the fact that they did not meet the South African government safety regulations, national standards and requirements in respect of specifications, and as such, they should not have been legally permitted to operate as taxis. Department of Transport and the representatives from the taxi industry have welcomed the public protector's report on the continual usage of illegal converted Toyota panel vans as taxis. Deputy Director General Matabata Mukonyama says, according to their records, there are about 1,986 vehicles that are illegally converted and most of them are the Toyota models. As a department, we believe that the remedial actions of the uh, public protector, the findings and the remedial actions are fair, and we are of the opinion that uh, they are implementable. We have already, by the way, started implementing the majority of them, if not all. For an example, we have uh, identified some more vehicles that have been illegally converted, about 1,986 from the INAT system, and we were rounding up those vehicles for purposes of scrapping them. Philip Taibosch is the president of Santago. We welcome the report of the public protector, and we also welcome the remedial actions which the public protector proposed in her report. And we believe that uh, through 
the engagement between ourselves, the department, and uh, other stakeholders, we will be able to discuss and uh, agree on what uh, could be the remedial actions from our side. Nkwebane has also upheld the complaint lodged by EFF leader Julius Malema about the Financial Service Board, FSCA, appointments of curators. I'm Nemo Quitting in Pretoria. Second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's approaching 8.46 Central African time. Tabitha Lohuku is standing by with our economics news. Good morning. South African and ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa says he's proud to be a leader of a party that seeks to continue to create jobs for the ordinary South Africans. He says more than 16 million people in the country are now employed because of the ANC-led government's efforts to create jobs. Ramaphosa was, in a, was on a campaign trail in Tembisa, north of Johannesburg, on Thursday afternoon. He says that the number could easily rise if South Africans continue to vote for the ANC where the youth will be employed and support their families. When we got into office in 1994, there were only 8 million people working in South Africa. Today, there are 16.5 million people 
who are working in our economy today. Consistently over the years, we have created jobs, and recently, this week, we have our figures, we have the South African Revenue Services says its strike contingency plans failed to kick off because striking workers violated the Pickerton rules. The Revenue Service will challenge an application by Labour Unions, National Education, Health and Allied Workers Union, NAHAU, and Public Servants Association of South Africa, PSA, and the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration, CCMA, in Johannesburg to expand the number of areas where workers can picket. SARS says it was agreed that workers will only picket at SARS head office in the capital Pretoria and Alberton campus. The first day of the strike on Thursday saw 33 of the 53 SARS walk-in branches being closed for business. Workers are demanding an 11.4% wage increase, while SARS's workers are demanding an 11.4% wage, or rather, while SARS is rather offering 7%. SARS remunerations executive at Takalani Musekwa has apologized to taxpayers who've been queuing outside the various branches. Our contingency plans were based on that basis, that uh, these are the places that the tickets will take place, these are the places where the tickets will not take place, and obviously some of our employees uh, have told us they felt intimidated and therefore they could not come to work because of that. So we are hoping that uh, if we stick to the rules, then the contingency plan that we had in place, we would have been able to have about 20-30-40% of our staff on duty and we would have been able to keep our offices open. Lesotho's government secretary, Muatludi Mpaka, has bemoaned the poor reporting on public funds by ministries and other departments involved. The secretary was speaking at the opening of principal secretaries and chief executive officers workshop on Thursday. The two-day workshop was organized by the Office of the Auditor General's PSC and CEOs and deputy principal secretaries and heads of finance departments at Lehagwe Recreational Center in the capital, Maseru. The workshop is among a series of of workshops the OAG is holding for government ministries, departments and all other institutions that manage public funds. The Central Bank of Egypt has decided to maintain the overnight interest rate on deposits and loans at 15.75 and 16.25 and 16.75 respectively. The decision was made by the CBE Monetary Policy Committee, which is headed by the CBE Governor Tarek Amar. The credit and discount rate was also kept unchanged at 16.25%. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.50 Nigerian Naira, 10.58 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan shilling, 3 cents, and 12.11 uh, Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.96 Brazilian roll, 64.88 Russian ruble, 69.13 Indian rupee, 6.73 Chinese yuan, and 14.62 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound, 88 cents to the euro, gold 1,000 to 89 dollars, platinum 8.44 dollars per ounce. So the price of Brent crude oil is at 68 dollars, 24 cents a barrel. Channel Africa, your favorite channel.
Thank you, Tabi. So it's time now for our sports news with Fikileli Mwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with the tennis news. Roger Federer will make Denis Shapovalov's dream come true today after the Swiss booked a Miami Open semi-final against the Canadian starlet with a ruthless 6-love, six 6-4 six destruction of Kevin Anderson. Shapovalov, who beat fellow young gun Francis Tiafoe, 6-7, 5-7 tie, 6-4, and 6-2 to reach his third ATP Masters semi-final. Grew up idolizing and studying the 20-time slam-winning Swiss legend who once again rolled back the years with a sublime show at Hard Rock Stadium. This will be their first meeting and one of the Canadian who will break, break into the top 20 when the rankings are released next week. Cannot wait for. On to football news, South African Premier Soccer League, PSL, has been forced to reschedule a further four matches involving Mamelodi Sundowns, known as the Brazilians, as a result of their participation in the CAF Champions League in Tswane, Pretoria, next month. The Brazilians host Egyptian powerhouses Al-Akhli in a delicious Champions League first leg quarterfinals at Loftus on the 8th of April. This fixture falls on the same weekend where they were originally supposed to host Super Sports United in a spicy Tswane derby. The Sundowns League matches that have been affected are against Super Sports United, Barroca, Lamontville Golden Arrows and Black Leopards. The PSL had already confirmed that the marquee clash against Orlando Pirates will be moved from the 27th of April to an unusual Monday kickoff. In rugby news, the South African rugby outfit Sharks have made just two changes to their starting 15 to face the Bulls at Kings Park this weekend. Luke Stringer replaces Pepsi Mutelezi at flank and Loazim Volvo comes onto the wing in place of Smungosi. On the bench, Philip van der Waal returns for the first time since picking up an injury in Japan at the end of last year. Sharks coach Robert Dupree explains reasons for the behind the changes. They start at the back. Uh, Luaz is coming in for Spoo. Um, is that a Springbok rotation? No, it's a bit of both. But he, he got a knock, uh, as you would remember, in last week's game on his on his quad. So, um, yeah. So he's, but it's also a bit of rotation. Luaz is coming in. Um, Luke Stringer starting. That's I don't know, rotational. Um, and that's the that's basically the starting lineup. Um, on the bench, Philip is back uh, for this weekend's game, and Kubis from Baker is coming in, and Kieran Papiran will replace Craig Burden on the bench. Both the Sharks and the Bulls have named a number of Springboks in the match day squads, and Dupree says with so much on the line, players must take responsibility on the park and put their names into the head for national selection. Absolutely, I mean this is. There's a massive opportunity for for for, uh, for all the players out there uh, on Saturday. You know, every everyone is going to be watching. Uh, you know, Rusty and his and his guys will be watching. And and yeah, and this is a great opportunity to stake your claim for that World Cup squad. And finally, the National Olympic Committee of Kenya, NOC, plans to have Team Kenya camp in the city of Kurume in Fukuoka ahead of next year's Olympic Games in Tokyo, Japan. NOC Acting Secretary General Francis Mutuku says a team from both NOC 
and the government plans to visit the city in August this year and also host officials from the city to map out logistics. He said Knox executive will engage all its affiliates concerning the pre-Olympics camp, noting that the final decision will be packed on several issues, including the adverse summer weather, culture and the diet in Japan. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine. A South Sudan politician Rebecca Nyandeng signs a new peace agreement. And aid workers say community mistrust is worsening DRC Ebola outbreak. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Amanda Machaga, producers Pumuzo Ramakaza and Humuzo Mopulani, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. You can still send us your comments about the show. Our WhatsApp number is plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven. We are also on Twitter. It's at Rise Shine Africa or email us to info at channelafrica.org. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is a tribute to Berdingobeni with a song titled Makomede. Thank you for the beautiful music from the bottom of our hearts. 